1: Real news and real stories covering topics from the worlds of science, sports, and space. It's all the information you need to weatherproof your life. And now here's the host of Everything Under the Sun, AccuWeather meteorologist Dean DeVore. The West Coast has been pummeled by storm after storm. This parade of storms with deep moisture has been creating situations we haven't seen in 150, 160 years. And it's had its toll and its price paid on people and infrastructure and buildings. What is that price? And is it offsetting the benefit of all this storminess, which is alleviating a drought situation that was causing all kinds of problems? That's our first Rays of Focus segment on Everything Under the Sun this week. We'll also talk about weather and history with our friend Evan Myers. Friends, sit back and relax. It's time to talk about everything under the sun from AccuWeather.com. It's been a parade of impactful storms, massive problems caused by them, tremendous amounts of rain, flooding, mud and debris slides, people displaced from their homes. It's been a parade that has gone on for the better part of weeks, and we're getting finally to the end of it. But all this negative problems has actually had an upside in the West, and that is some alleviation of the drought. But at what cost? Friends, this is our first race of Focus segment, and I'm really happy to bring in our chief meteorologist, John Porter, and Bill Waddell from the AccuWeather Network, who does amazing work out in the field and out in the midst of this uh, storms and the problems reporting for us at AccuWeather and the AccuWeather Network. And I wanted to bring the both of you in to talk about this. I got to spend about three or four days out in uh, California, out in Los Angeles, right around the New Year's holiday. It was kind of that prelude to the really big storm that came about a week or so after that, but it was pretty impactful. And I saw some of the problems that were mounting up that you know, I've been to California quite a few times in my life it was pretty bad. And then it only got worse with this last round of storms. And I know that Bill and uh, John, we've all been watching this situation. And I think the thing that struck me the most in this is kind of the catch 22 of all of this, how bad it's been. But we needed it to get rid of some drought that was causing problems in its own right. And I think that's kind of the major focus that I want to talk about here uh, on this podcast today. Bill, I want to start with you um, and I want want to have you go through maybe a couple of clips of people that were on the ground with you in this. But as somebody who's been around and now traveled and been reporting for the AccuWeather Network last few years, in terms of overall effect, how bad was this from your point of view and from the people that you were talking to? What were they saying to you?
2: You know, it, it was a really tough past few weeks out there in California we have, our team is well forecasted this event. We've been pushing out the alerts on the AccuWeather app, so many articles, there's been so much news coverage. And I believe just the, the magnitude and the relentless rounds of these storms, it still took some people off guard. We know that some people were prepared, but uh, a few folks that I spoke to, they were stuck in their cars on the side of the highway overnight. They thought they had time to travel between these storms. We know that California, it's it's really a unique area. You've got the coast, you've got the mountains, you've got the valleys. Some of these areas really are susceptible to the flooding, and people that have lived in that area, some of them for decades, told us it has been a long time since they've seen flooding like this. And not just one round of flooding, but how quickly the water levels went up, how quickly they dropped, and then how quickly they would they would come right back up even higher after that third, fourth, fifth round of storm. So it's it's been an exhausting past few weeks for people.
1: We've heard uh, the the terminology, John Porter, um, you know, river of moisture, atmospheric river. um, Some people have called it the the Pineapple Express because a lot of the origins come from that area in the Pacific that's adjacent or near to Hawaii. But historically... Uh, It's been about, what, 150, 170 years since we've seen this kind of uh, situation unfold uh, in terms of uh, just the totality of this. Is that that about right in my perspective there?
3: I think so. It's the totality that we've all been talking about here. That uh, The thing that struck me is that any one of these big storms, uh, one of these uh, potent storms bringing heavy rainfall, the mudslides, the heavy mountain snow, any one of them on their own, would have been very significant and noteworthy. But what was really impactful here, it was the combination of them, storm after storm, a relentless deluge that uh, just uh, really exacerbated all the flooding and uh, mudslide issues much worse than they would have been if it was just that one individual storm. So it was that whole campaign of storms that really, as you mentioned, Dean, had a a tropical connection, a moisture feed of some 2,500 miles out into the Pacific, translating that and, and tapping into that deep tropical Pacific moisture and aiming it directly for California. This wasn't something that dropped in from the north and you only got a part of the moisture. It was aimed, the moisture channel was aimed directly at California. And I think that's why, as Bill mentioned, we were highlighting that risk, particularly many days and weeks in advance of the concern that this parade of storms was going to have a big impact on people and businesses.
1: Bill was uh, on the ground uh, for the network, talking to people. Let's uh, bring some sound in from uh, Martin Becerra. He, uh, I believe, Bill, he was in Santa Barbara County, right? And that's uh, where where Martin was.
2: He was, yes, he was one of the unfortunate drivers uh, who ended up spending the night on the side of a ramp along the 101, right in the oh, wow. um, yeah, right in the Santa Barbara area because of the, the flooding and the mudslides.
1: So let's hear what he had to say about his experience in that.
2: I've been living. Pretty much I said, my whole life right here in this
3: county, Santa Barbara, I'm from Santa Mariana, but nothing I've ever seen like like last night,
4: nothing. In my 50 years living right here in the county, you know, but never seen like this storm that, that hit us yesterday, nothing, you know, not
3: even when was it back in 2005? For me, last night, yesterday, was
2: was horrible, terrible.
1: The perspective from those people, never seen anything like it. And and some of the pictures that I saw of these rivers of of water and mud and debris going down these major roads. The 101 was mm-hmm. basically a river uh, in a couple of these scenarios. And so for folks that have to get around and do things, and, and there's no escaping having to get around in California because there's no clear path to go from one place to the other. You either have to go around a mountain or up a valley or Or something—it's very difficult in that part of the world to to travel from point A to point B without doing something, going over a mountain or or going through a a valley or an arroyo that can flood easily. So these people, um, I think, um, Bill, just uh, it, it had to be an onslaught of all these storms, and then you know, no rest for the weary. You think you're getting better, and then all of a sudden, the next one comes, and it's like you said, worse than the one before, and so that had to take a mental toll. For those of you covering it on the ground and and what you saw with people dealing with it themselves on the ground, Bill.
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, I could say the past year and a half, it's we have seen a lot of weather events and weather disasters across the country. And we know that Montecito, Santa Barbara, of course, has a history with bad mudslides, bad flooding. And, and that's happened in the past. Martin was not in the area for those events. We know we just had the five-year anniversary. Uh, again, for different people, these are different perspectives. And even though they may have lived in the area a couple of years ago, they escaped the worst of the last round, but but this one just because, you know, as you said, it wasn't one or two storms. We've had days and days and weeks and weeks. A lot of people only have so much time to put their lives on hold. They huh. still have to go to work. They still have to pick up their kids from school. And Martin was one of those those folks who told us he was driving down to the to LAX to pick up a couple of family members who who had flown in. He was trying to get them home in between these storm events. Yeah. And what happened in that area of Montecito, right right near the line with Santa Barbara. These there were two creeks in the area. They just flooded, and and they so they rose so rapidly. There was we knew this was coming in a lot of different areas. But even for the emergency officials, it's tough to pinpoint sometimes which creek is going to flood in what spot first. They want to keep the roads open. You know, we've got ambulances. We still have critical transportation going on. We can't. You know, nobody wants to shut down an entire major highway for days on end because of a maybe. You know, So they try and keep them open while they're safe. But what happened is so much water, so much mud, so much debris and rock started clogging those little creeks that run under the 101. And unfortunately, that was the spot, one of the spots that flooded first. And some people, Martin was one of those people. He had his family in the car. They were essentially stuck between two roadblocks. So the 101 ended up being shut down in several places. He was in a sedan, not a lot of ground clearance with his family. There's a roadblock in front of him, a roadblock beside him. A lot of the side streets were other, either flooded, washed out. And, it, it, you know, especially in the night when you have your family in a car, you don't want to put them in more danger. You don't want to get stuck in mud, stuck in another mudslide. So he he made that gut decision. The safest thing to do was stay right on the side of that 101 ramp. And he said, they didn't sleep because of all of the road crews coming in overnight, mm. all of the ambulances, the, the police and fire. And he said it, he's so glad he did. It was the best decision he could have made because he was right there with officials. He was at a construction site with a porta potty nearby. A lot of other people in the area, they were not as lucky. They were either stuck on the 101 overnight or stuck on these side roads. And, you know, the, the emergency response, it was spread thin. I mean, there, there were a lot of resources that were spread thin and people were calling 911 for help. And it was taking a while you know, to get that help just because there were so many calls coming in all at the same time. And these crews have been working in in really tough conditions out there trying to help people.
3: And that's another example, too, of one of the things that we've seen in a lot of scenarios lately where water is involved, how quickly the water Mm. can rise. Yeah. And Bill, as you're talking about how quickly a situation can go from being dangerous to downright life threatening in the matter of sometimes just a couple of seconds
1: seconds yep yeah.
3: and uh that's uh, as we continue to deal with uh water related emergencies in the country i think that's going to continue to be a factor here going forward is just realizing how quick people always comment after these disasters of how fast a dangerous situation escalates to being truly life threatening and that's why we saw all the video from california of these swift water rescues rescues from helicopters, and, and thank goodness that this was well-forecast because that enabled the government and public safety resources to bring those extra resources in and make them available, but it still was stretching them so thin due to the widespread nature of the unrelenting rain.
1: Let's hear from a couple of more folks. Uh, Marcel Waite, uh, you know, one of the things in, in the, these uh, cuts that he... Uh, talks about balance, right? And I think this is where, for those of us that deal with California, we understand that balance. We've got fire season, we have burn, we have problems, and then we get some rainy season, but the balance is usually there. It's not the wild swings of tremendous drought and tremendous uh, defoliation because of that, and then on top of that now, 150-year flood, and so it's harder to strike a balance when you've got extremes of the weather on one side or the other. Let's hear from him a little bit. This is... Mark. Marcel, wait, and then Bill can tell us a little bit more about his story.
2: You got to pay for the beauty, you know? So we have crazy fires in the summertime, and then we have this in the in the wintertime, and it'd be nice to have a little bit of a balance. Um, but uh, this is this is extreme for, for around here. I mean, people haven't seen this since, uh, you know, 1982 or, or, you know, more than 10 years, 20 years ago.
1: Bill, tell us briefly about Marcel's story. And then the other thing about that, it, it's always interesting to me because of, The way that California has been populated, the first push in the 50s from the east and then over the years, more and more people, everybody has a different perspective of this historic nature of this. Uh, Some people go back into the 50s and some people are just in the last four or five years of what's gone on. So talk a little bit about Marcel's situation.
2: Yeah, Marcel is a younger guy. I would say he's in a... Thir- late 30s. Uh, I I met him on a bicycle in Santa Cruz with a-, a bunch of families in between the heavy rounds of storms. Everybody was out in Santa Cruz watching the San Lorenzo River, and we're seeing all of these huge logs, all of these debris gushing down the river, hitting the bridge supports. A lot of people keeping a close eye on the levees, and that's one of the conversations that keeps coming up. I've been out there, you know, this past summer in the fall. Thank goodness, a lot of people are so grateful that. California lucked out with this past wildfire season. Not nearly as much land burned as we've seen in in previous years. And that's one silver lining they really lucked out for a number of reasons. But that's all we heard about in the summer and the fall. It is so hot. It is so dry. Please, let's have a good wet season. Let's get something. Let's not have a repeat of the past winter where we had a record-breaking December and then the driest January, February March on record. So you have all of these people hoping, wishing, praying for rain. And then here comes the California wet season. And oh, my gosh, just this parade of storms so that we know California is a tough place to balance. They've got some wacky weather, some really unique geography. It's what makes it so beautiful and so special and such a huge agricultural hub. And and all of a sudden, we've had these parade of storms, well forecast, well in advance. But I think just the scope of it, really, it, it was just a lot for people to comprehend. And we're in this era now where Everyone has a smartphone. We're seeing so many videos in real time on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook. I think just the scope of seeing all the flooding all at the same place, because even by the time we get to some of these flooded areas, we have video of a car that was flooded in Santa Cruz County where fire crews had to help them. And I saw social media comments. How could they not get out of the water on their own? It's only a few inches. And we have to explain the water was up to their their side mirrors, almost their window. It rises and it falls so quickly. So, you know. It was months of of hoping and waiting for this rain. We don't want a repeat of last winter. And then we're just bombarded with all of this water. And again, as you said, the infrastructure, a lot of places are being built up. We've got a lot of concrete. We've got a lot of asphalt. And the runoff isn't going in the same places that it was 10 or 20 years ago.
1: And then the other thing um, about this is over the last several years, the amount of homeless encampments in these cities and these places has gone up dramatically. And uh, the last cuts I'd like to play is from uh, Diane. Tell us a little bit about where she was from. And then her, I, I think, was striking to me about she is a, a person that's an activist. She in really has made a, a life's mission to, to help the homeless by taking a day out to feed them and all of those people who were living in places that got flooded that's the places that they went to to set up uh, their encampments and yet now those are all devastated uh, let's hear a little bit from diane and then again bill you can talk uh, briefly about her situation i was here when they had the 1955 flood and lost my house lost my dog lo- lost it lost everything and this is I've never seen anything like this. I've been in one other other uh, flood in New Orleans, which I guess is really common, but I did not know that. And we lost our apartment. But this, I help. I feed the
0: homeless people once a week down that live down here. I don't know where these people are. It's like they just disappeared.
1: That's a situation that I think uh, we're going to maybe uncover a little bit more here in the next couple of weeks, Bill. That aspect of this, uh, not only has this been devastating to the the residents of of California, but the people that were uh, in California that didn't have a home, but were using it uh, as a a home, uh, have been devastated too.
2: Yeah, these bridges and overpasses, this is where some people take shelter. And let's just remember that California, it's beautiful, but it is an expensive place to live. You know, the times are tough. Things are expensive. And for a lot of people, we're one car accident, one job layoff, one house fire away from homelessness. And that's some of the people that I've been speaking to. You know, the, some of these stories have changed and how easy it is for for people to, to lose their homes or find themselves in that spot, even if it's a couple weeks, couple months, uh, yeah, Diane is very concerned about some of the people. We know there's volunteer groups, and they're they're they've been checking in on these people and these encampments, and they're warning them ahead of time. Some people don't have smartphones. Some of them, unfortunately, you know, they're not getting these push alerts on the apps, and they they don't have the luxury of seeing these forecasts ahead of time. So these volunteer groups are going out on foot warning people, this is not a safe place to be. And in recent days, especially on the tail end of of this parade of storms, we saw helicopter rescues in in Orange County in spots like that. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing more and more that some of these people caught in these very precarious situations, they are experiencing homelessness. So yeah, unfortunately, we're seeing homeowners, we're seeing agriculture workers and farmers being caught in the wrong place the wrong time, or they thought they had enough time to travel and get out. But yeah, this community especially hit hard. And uh, yeah, I, I, we, there are concerns. I mean, they've been looking for, for missing people or at least unaccounted for. They're just trying to make sure everyone is accounted for. And, and that's one of the community members, unfortunately, in the days, even weeks to come. We may still be getting more bad news out of this. There may be some more heartbreaking discoveries.
1: John, I know uh, AccuWeather over the years has become a, a kind of a source for to put a monetary value on some of these uh, situations, these disastrous weather situations. And uh, Dr. Joel Myers and you and the team have put together uh, the estimated costs of this parade of storms,
3: and it's what over
1: thirty billion dollars is what yeah, we're looking
3: a, at. It's a big number. We're estimating the uh, total damage and economic loss from the parade of storms to be between 31 and 34 billion dollars and that takes into account all of the types of damage that we're talking about the flooding uh, the mudslides uh, the numerous trees that that fell the property damage that occurred over 2 million reported power outages all the damage to infrastructure you know Dean we were talking about the concerns about the issues around uh, possibly levees and even dams being uh, breached in this particular situation, which occurred in uh, in some spots, particularly relative to the levees. And uh, so that's a big number, as well as all the disruption to commerce, to people's jobs, to businesses, thousands of flight delays and cancellations over the parade of storms. It added up and it added up fast. And Dean, one of the things that I pointed out on our network this morning was the fact that oftentimes, Homeowners sometimes are surprised when they go to file an insurance claim. If they don't have the separate flood insurance, many times homeowners insurance does not cover for flooding damage. And oftentimes in these situations, people find themselves in a precarious position where their homeowners insurance will not cover it if they did not elect the uh, National Flood Insurance Program or other types of uh, flood insurance and even if they did have flood insurance, sometimes they can end up in a situation where the actual damage was so significant that the payout doesn't end up covering it. So, in these situations, unfortunately, we often find people end up being underinsured relative to the actual damage that was sustained just because you're talking about flooding. And Dean, as we've talked about before, once water gets into a structure, mm-hmm. the damage, the cost to repair it really escalates versus other types of damage.
1: Well, and I think, uh, you know, we, we, we... Seen the levees and the and the dams that have already been breached or broken, but we don't know the damage that we can't see right. uh, underneath because of all this pressure of all this water and problems and the debris and stuff. So this is going to be probably like peeling back an onion, like we're seeing uh, in these major storms, where you know a lot of things are are visible to us now in terms of problems, but there's still a lot under the surface, and I think Bill mentioned that too. The good news is though real quick John I think we're nearing the end of this parade right it seems like things are shifting a little bit and and the storminess should not be as bad here as we go over the next couple of weeks um as that amount of moisture available to these storms is going to get cut off a bit
3: Yeah that's a great way to say it the um and I think that's uh, it's going to be very welcome news for people uh, to dry out a bit here in uh, California. Most of the moisture is going to be directed to the north. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't have uh, some rain and mountain snow events, but they don't look like they're going to be the type with this prolific uh, moisture that we've been dealing with here in recent weeks. This has been such an unprecedented weather pattern. We'll be drying out on average. Our long-range team, though, does think that we could be dealing with more events in February that can bring some rain and mountain snow once again. So it looks like the wet season... Oh, it's probably not over at this particular point, but we're going to have time to take a deep breath here and start the long road to recovery in many of these communities. And as as
1: Bill pointed out earlier, uh, we're all rooting for more rain and more mountain snow. That's what we want. We want snow up in the mountains. So it uh, takes the natural process of getting released slower right. in the spring rather than all at once, Bill. I think that's what everybody wants, as you pointed out. We had that record-breaking December and then bupkis in uh, January and February. Um, even if we do get a little pause here, which is well needed, we hope for a few more rounds to get uh, things going up in the, in the mountains, at least with snow cover.
2: Absolutely. One interesting thing I want to point out, we did a report with uh, our lead long-range forecaster, Paul Pastelot. Let's keep in mind, all of this rain and precipitation means more vegetation growth. A lot of that already happening in Southern California. We want to be really careful with this. We're hoping to be optimistic, but it's worth keeping note because the fire crews, Cal Fire, is already discussing this. How much vegetation is going to grow this spring? How quickly Hmm. are things going to dry out? Are we going to have a bumper crop of grass and vegetation That's going to dry out quickly and create even more potential fuel for the fire. So that's something that Paul Pasteloc and his team is already talking about. Again, no one wants to be a Debbie Downer.
1: But, no, but let's, no, let's I think but, but we, yeah, we have to be on. real. Yeah. yeah, I think reali- yeah. realism is where we need to be. And and this is the, you know, Marcel wanted balance. I don't know if we're going to get it because of uh, we're going from one extreme to the other. Um Great points. Bill, thank you for all your hard work on the network and um, all of the uh, great work that you did there. And John, thank you so much for uh, I know you're proud of the team. As Bill said, this was well forecasted and we knew this was coming. And so people had the, the information in front of them. I think I think sometimes just because of the uh, nature of this kind of uh, situation, which is very rare and not a lot of people have experience with it, they may not have known what to expect with what we were forecasting for them. So I know everybody's uh, proud in that regard.
3: We, we did a great job uh, in terms of getting that information out and highlighting the risk for this being something that people may not have seen before in their lifetime. And we used some of the strongest language that I can recall we've ever used in terms of a California flooding situation. Bernie Reno and I on the AccuWeather Network uh, described this as bringing the risk for widespread life threatening flooding. That would be catastrophic in some areas and, and highlighting that concern for mudslides. We thought that would be a big deal. There were over 400 reports of mudslides in recent weeks. That just puts into context uh, just the uh, widespread nature of these issues. Some communities we thought would be cut off, at least briefly, that occurred as well. So those impacts were, were described. We, we use very strong language in advance and we know it helped people to better prepare. People in communities to better prepare. Dean, to your point, I'm afraid that in the, in the climate, in the world of climate change that we're dealing with now, that these episodes of really dry conditions followed by periods of extreme rainfall is more of what we're going to be dealing with in California. That's going to bring more of these kinds of issues, both from a drought and also a uh, excessive rainfall and flooding perspective for the decades to come. So I think this is a perhaps a, a sign of what's ahead. John Porter, Bill Waldell,
1: thank you so much. That is our first raise of focus here on Everything Under the Sun. Speaking of mud and debris, we're going to go back in history with our friend Evan Myers talking about the mud march that made a big difference in the Civil War. That's coming up next. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Whether you're at home getting ready for work, packing the kids' lunch, or commuting, listen to AccuWeather Daily, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get the top trending weather story of the day, every day. Friends, welcome back into Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com as we... Relaunch our podcast and get it uh, into a situation where I think you're going to appreciate how we do this going forward. We're going to use that first race of focus segment, as we did earlier here today, talking about big ticket weather information and, and stories, including those big storms. And then after that, the second segment is going to kind of rotate between areas of focus, One is weather and history with our friend Evan Myers, who's just about to join me here. Also talk about sports and weather, astronomy and weather, gardening, science and weather. So each of those segments after our main Rays of Focus segment will kind of touch on weather-related things, where the weather meets your life. And certainly, the weather and history have certainly been hand-in-hand. In fact, one of our great resources here, just because... He has been part of history for so long Is <laughs> Evan Myers. Are...
4: I'm not sure how to take that, yeah, well, Dean. Well, you'll,
1: I... you'll, you'll take it and you'll go from there. But... I,
4: I, I will indeed. Well, you know, history is part of our lives. Right. Uh, you know, we remember events, not just major events, but events in our lives that relate to history and, and what happened that day, whether it be a wedding or first day of school, all those things. We, we kind of put those two together.
1: And then the interesting part that I think from all of this when I look at historical events is, you know, some people think, well, this is the first time we've ever had a storm like this. Well, unfortunately, that's not really the case. We've had storms and problems. But the thing that's interesting to me is looking back at how they dealt with things that, you know, right now are problematic for us. But with technology and industry and machines, we get out of these problems a lot quicker ...than they did back in uh, some of these historical events. So what we're going to do, Evan and I, each month, we're going to have a segment. We're going to look at a couple of events and maybe focus on one in that particular month. just want to kind of mention, you know, as we get into the middle, latter part of January here, usually every four years inauguration time, and that inauguration in 1961 was pretty amazing. First of all, it's uh, the inauguration of John F. Kennedy. Some uh, great rhetoric from that speech that will drop in here, I think, in a moment. But the weather was absolutely problematic. Just talk some highlights about how bad it was.
4: Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Uh, the forecast... Uh, wasn't the AccuWeather forecast yet because AccuWeather <laughs> right. wasn't right. – but we the forecast yet, right? was actually – well, I was born. I was – I was. <laughs> I was I just turned 11 years old. <laughs> okay. I was – I, was I wasn't a, born yet, but we'll believe I, it. I was – well, you said – you talked about me in history, so <laughs> yeah, I had to go. throw that in. <laughs> yeah. I was a big Kennedy supporter. You My were? family was, and I was looking forward to the inauguration. The weather forecast, getting back to that – was for a couple of rain showers starting uh, late in the day before on the 19th in Washington, D.C., and uh, maybe the morning of of the 20th. That was the forecast. That was the forecast. That was the for That was not what happened What happened What happened was a blizzard, snow- right? Well, it wasn't quite a blizzard, but it was close. It was a big snowstorm. And part of the problem was it started snowing in the late afternoon as people started to come home from work. The problem is it snowed. As us meteorologists might say, in a thump, it was all right. at once. Boom. It was several inches an hour, and people just got stuck in the snow because they didn't expect it. You know, people used to put chains on their tires yeah. and stuff. They, none of that.
1: We know how that area just, in a flake of snow, even to today, they just go into a tizzy. Well, right?
4: sometimes, yeah, that's true. And so people just abandon their cars. Wow. So they abandoned their cars. There was about uh, 8 to 12 inches of snow across the Washington, D.C. metro area. Very
1: significant for them.
4: And so they had a – the inauguration was the next day and the inaugural parade. There have been times when the inauguration, certain events in the past were suspended, but not this time. And they had to clean it up. They had to figure out how to do it. Luckily, the snow ended right around dawn or before dawn, and they had all morning to clean up. But what did they do? They didn't they weren't ready for it. They, no. well, it wasn't like today when there's the plows are right. ready and so, and the, as you mentioned, the l- sophistication level of technology was low lower. So what did they do? They had to bring in dump trucks, front end loaders, wow. you know, not not actually plows. I mean they had some of those. Sanders, the Army, they used flamethrowers. Flamethrowers to melt some <laughs> wow. of the snow. Uh, it's interesting because DC sanitation workers And Streets Department worked hand-in-hand with Army equipment. They had to move 1,400 cars that were abandoned along the Euro route. They had to get them out of the way. And we've had those scenes from Buffalo recently about cars stuck and how how to get them out of the way. Obviously, they didn't have that kind of heavy snow that they had in Buffalo. But still, they had to move them. So they had to get that out. Another contingent of troops cleared the reviewing stands. And 1,700 Boy Scouts, the call went out, the Boy Scouts, help, help. 1,700 Boy Scouts showed up, you know, organized in their troops and helped clean things up. And the inauguration and the inaugural parade went off as scheduled uh, because thousands of people pitched in. And as John Kennedy, uh, first president born in the 20th century, uh, spoke, it was kind of like, a fresh blanket of snow, and and a new beginning.
1: And these are some of the words that he said that uh, are so memorable to us today.
2: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not
1: what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. So, interesting stuff. Um, Let's go back now. A hundred years earlier than that, with the one that I wanted to focus on, it's called Burnside's Mud March. <laughs> yes, indeed. Right? Um, it's not funny. It was during no, the Civil War. It, it was the Civil War, another situation where the weather impacted a situation where it really changed the way things were in the war at that time. Talk a little bit
4: about that. Uh, Absolutely. Prior to uh, the Mud March, you have to set the scene. In December, mid-December of 1862, so the war was, what, a year, year and a half old. Right. There was the Battle of Fredericksburg, which was undoubtedly the worst defeat for the Union forces in the Eastern Theater, and perhaps during the whole war. Right. Uh, 13,000 casual, Union casualties as they assaulted Lee's troops along the hills above Fredericksburg. Uh, Lee suffered about 5,000 casualties, but it was a total rout for the Union Army, and the Union Army was, uh, you know, its morale was, was, was low. So the head of the Army at that time, Ambrose Burnside, decided he needed to buck up the morale and also, perhaps catch Lee's troops uh, napping a little bit because of the the victory. They had had success, and they were probably just kind of eased out of, right, uh, of it, their of
1: their offensive there.
4: And it, right, and it's the winter, and throughout history, even up to today, during harsh winter conditions, uh, sometimes wars get not suspended, but they slow down. We've seen that in Ukraine and Russia over uh, the last couple of years, right? uh, Absolutely. So what? So Burnside decided, I'm going to take the initiative. So he moved a huge Union army, and he wanted to move it across the Rappahannock in northern Virginia and flank Lee's army. And eventually, the war would be won by Grant uh, using all kinds of flanking maneuvers. Flanking maneuvers by armies uh, oftentimes if they're pulled off properly uh, work because you, you get around the rear of, the, of your opponent and they may not know you're there right. and attack where they don't expect it. Still back in these days, back in Civil War, and one of the reasons why the casualties were so tremendous during the Civil War is they were still fighting wars in the beginning uh, mm-hmm. like wars had been fought for centuries before, frontal assaults. We're just going to attack right. uh, the other guy. In the you front. might have had a rifle, but you had a bayonet, and that was the well. The you're, gonna, you're just going to go straight yeah. at him. Yeah. I mean, uh, look at the, even the Battle of Gettysburg. The biggest part of that battle, Pickett's Charge, was just we're going to just charge across the field and try to attack you. And that's why casualties were so great. By the end of the war, that had changed. It, in fact, people say the Civil War was the first modern war. That they started in in you know the centuries before, but hand they hand finished, hand, but, then they but they finished, finished up in a, in in a different things, way, right. and and right. these flanking maneuvers right. and so on. So Burnside was, and incidentally, by the way, Ambrose Burnside sideburns. Yeah. He oh. had, he had very bushy. So long that's where side that comes burns, from, and that's where that comes from sideburns. Right. It is. It's it's not just the weather, right? Right. <laughs> right. There you yeah. go. History is all kinds of things. So he, so what he was going to do, he felt he could flank move his army quickly in 48 hours, build a pontoon bridge across the Rappahannock because the the Union engineers were great at building pontoon bridges, allowing all kinds of rivers to be crossed. So he was going to move them across uh, the Rappahannock, flank Lee's army and win a decisive victory, increase the morale of the Union, but also bring a much quicker end to the war. Remember, this is just the beginning of of 1863, the war would ultimately last another two years with hundreds of thousands of dead after this. So how did the weather just uh, mess up his plans? <laughs> well, the month leading up to it had been very dry across uh, Virginia, the mid-Atlantic states, down into the, the northern part of the south. And so the, the ground was pretty solid. I mean, that was important. The roads in those days were obviously Just not mud. They were mud, right? they were, mud, the matter, they were dirt. Well, uh, they, well, this was dirt, right? right? They were not paved well. Right. Uh, they were only paved in cities. I mean, the, right. the country roads were... And different. that wasn't even the paving that we know today. It was no, the same, they, right? they weren't, unless the Romans did it centuries <laughs> before. <laughs> right, yeah, they, they, they were better at it, than the right. they, they? They knew how to do it, and in fact, we use their building techniques for roads today. But right. we'll, 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 that's, 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 that's a
1: story for another day. Right,
4: it <laughs> is. So, uh, he felt that he was going to be able to do that. So, as soon as the federal, as soon as the union forces started, started to move, uh, it started raining lightly. But the roads were still okay. But then it turned into a downpour, and it was a, a, a situation that lasted for about four days Long, so you can imagine that a logistical problem started almost immediately. Mm, right. they They started to lay this pontoon bridge across the Rappahannock. It started to rise. They had to reconfigure from an engineering standpoint. They could still deal with it, but the, so that that caused a huge traffic jam that snarled the army's progress. Uh, in one day, there was a quote that the fifth uh, regiment from New York only moved a mile. Wow. Uh, you know, so you had tens of thousands, actually, Hundred thousand troops all trying to get across this pontoon bridge, and everything is bogged down and they're in, stuck the mud. in the mud. Right, right, yeah. and so the element of surprise, it was gone.
1: Yeah, the, they had signs up, right? Like uh, as, as people were driving along. Yeah, Well, right?
4: well, well the, so the Confederates saw what was going on. They moved their troops around, and in fact, there were signs that the Confederate Army uh, posted up said Burnside's Army stuck in the mud, and yeah. it became known as the Mud March. And ultimately, what happened was there was there was no attack. There was no battle. They had to turn back because the Illinois surprise was gone. Half their troops were still across the northern part of Rappahannock; They couldn't even cross. So it, it really affected the battle. If it had been dry, we don't know the outcome, right, obviously. Right, right. But if it was dry, Burnside did have the initiative. He would have flanked Lee. That doesn't mean he would have won the battle, but he might have. And if he had won this large battle, maybe the war would have uh, ended or shortened, but it didn't because the weather directly intervened in what was going on. Now, today, uh, if situations like that arose, the weather forecast for the Army, uh, Burnside's Army, if it was modern times, would have known that this storm was going to develop and stall probably in the Virginia Capes that we can, you know, look at current situations and understand what happened probably it was an easterly flow off the ocean and it just kept it moist they would have known that and they wouldn't have done they wouldn't have done that maneuver they would have done it quicker they wouldn't have done it at all there would have been all kinds of differences but in those days they didn't they didn't no. know that and that's one of the reasons why after the war the you know US Army Signal Corps was the precursor to the National Weather Service that started Right after, right after the Civil War, because it was obvious that we, they tried, they needed to know what better weather information, what was coming.
1: You know, these are the kinds of stories that uh, Evan and I will be talking about month to month. Um, Looking forward to February, but. That's great stuff, and, uh, you know, I think sometimes we're going to struggle because there's three or four stories from a month that we might want to talk about, but I thought these were two good ones here.
4: You know, and it's interesting, Dean, as we go and do this each month, There's so many military engagements that were dependent almost 100 percent on the weather. And very historical and determinative in the course of history in the United States from George Washington's uh, retreat from Long Island during the Battle of Long Island. He was able to escape in the fog to the fact that uh, the maybe the biggest victory uh, outside of Yorktown was at Saratoga when uh, the troops that were invading the British troops from Canada were turned back and then ultimately surrendered and got Europe, European countries, France and Spain on our side was the fact that it was a situation where they were in a bad spot. The British Army tried to retreat, but then it rained, and they got stuck in the mud just like Burnside did. There's just time after time after time like that throughout history that the weather really had a profound impact on the outcome of battles and wars. It's pretty amazing.
1: And friends, our conversations with Evan will be coming back uh, every month here. Uh, what we're going to do now as we resume the Everything Under the Sun podcast uh, going forward is we're going to start every week leading off with our first Rays of Focus segment as we have before, and it's going to be a big-ticket item Uh, A big storm that's going on or a big piece of weather news that we want to discuss. We're going to get experts and sound and voices about that big story up first. And then in our second segment each week, we're going to kind of split it up in that idea that I talked about previously, where things where the weather meets your life. Well, weather and history meet, and we just talked about that with Evan. We expect once we get into February to put that at the beginning of the month weather and sports, something close to my heart, and that's something we'll be doing probably in the second podcast of the month. We're also going to be talking about uh, things like science and gardening and lifestyle issues that we'll sporadically get in there, too. In fact, like next week, our second segment is going to be about the first exoplanet that they discovered uh, with the James Webb telescope. So amazing stuff that uh, is going to intrigue you and get you interested in talking and we'll be able to get you more information. And we also hope to kind of weave in our stories with things that they're doing on our AccuWeather.com network and AccuWeather.com as well and things that you can see in the app. So this is the plan going forward. That first race of focus, the big weather story, people talking about the weather, what they're saying, what they've been feeling, and then a second segment that talks about the weather and your life as we go through it. And we'll be giving you all that information on this as we go through and go forward. I'm very indebted to my great executive producers, Ken Prell and Andrew Robb, for all their hard work behind the scenes. Thanks again to our guests, Bill Waddell and John Porter and for our hundreds of team members who work hard every day to make your life better by weatherproofing your life with our AccuWeather app and our AccuWeather.com stories and information and our AccuWeather network and AccuWeather Now for all of us. Thanks for listening. We'll be here next week. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com.
3: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate,
1: and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at AccuWeather.podcast at AccuWeather.com.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?